Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. We're so fortunate to have all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to give us that uh, entire look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And during these last several weeks of Christmas, of course, we've focused much of our attention from Matthew and Luke, who will give us the actual birth and infant narratives of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as this morning we read from the Gospel of John, as our theme on the light, that Christ is the light of the world, it's interesting that John begins, too, uh, with the narrative that prepares for the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, as was read already this morning. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then the next verse, I think that's really important, too, in verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was coming into the world. As he began his public ministry, as the light of the world, we are not given much information about those years in between the Christmas story that we have celebrated these past weeks and the inauguration of his public ministry, especially with the baptism with John the Baptist as his public ministry at age 30 begins. We do have one little glimpse that we are given. I'd like to go back to the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 1, actually, just to, be, just to remind you. We're going to look at one little glimpse we have into the early life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all we're given, but I think there is much in this account that is good for us to consider today. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that uh, your words will be heard and that uh, our hearts would be sensitive to your words and we would listen to you and your Holy Spirit would speak to our lives. And if there be one here today who has never received Christ as their Savior, that you would open their heart to the gospel, the good news that we have sung about and shared already in worship this morning, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, victorious over death, and offers us freedom from sin, salvation, eternal life, and the hope of the resurrection. May you impress that upon each of our hearts this morning as we continue to gather on this Resurrection Sunday, this Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I just want to remind you that as we look at the Gospel of Luke, that um, he tells us how he, how he gathered this story together. Luke was not one of the original disciples or the apostles. Luke, we, we believe Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't ever say anywhere in the Gospel, I, Luke, wrote this, but it's very good early church history. And we know that the same author wrote the book of Acts. Because they both begin the same with this address to a certain Theophilus. But I'm just, as you, if you were to do research on a historical incident, or say you're doing a paper, a research paper in college or something, uh, one of the things you want to do is you want to go back as much as possible to original sources. You want to go back to the first sources as much as possible. And you notice in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many people we're trying to, 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 to gather these and to write a history and write recollections of the Lord Jesus Christ. We only have the four Gospels that we believe in the canon of Scripture God wanted us to have. He says many people have been trying to do this. And he says, um, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the very first eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then we go into the, to the narrative story of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and then of uh, Mary with the vision from God, the shepherds, uh, the angels, and the account of the Lord being born in Bethlehem in the manger. And so Luke went back to first sources. And I'm assuming one of the, the best sources for all this information would be who? Mary. Mary who, who lived throughout the time of the Gospels into the early church. Joseph disappears from the scene after chapter 2 of Luke. We don't find Joseph again. Um, but Mary is probably his best source, and he's probably worked through this with Mary and his history. And so as we go to chapter 2 today, we really have the end of what we call the, the infant-slash-childhood narrative of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get to the end of chapter 2, when chapter 2 ends, then we have about 18 years until we pick up again in chapter 3, with the public ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. We get this one little glimpse into what it meant to be the God-man. I'm I'm, uh, cautious about even preaching from this section because there is just so much we could... How could we ever begin to comprehend? We've talked about this. How could we ever begin to comprehend what it meant to be fully God and fully human? Oftentimes we, we focus on the deity and we forget the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read last week, in all ways tempted like we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who has been touched with our infirmities. And how, how can we, I mean, to even preach on this and even talk about this and make suppositions and, and suggestions as to what it was like is sort of dangerous grounds, right? Because none of us want to be wrong about these things. But we just are, we're just not given much. But we are given this little insight into what it meant and what it was like to be a 12-year-old boy who was fully God and fully a Palestinian Jewish youth in the first century in Israel. And so we begin in chapter 2. And the, the, the story is bookended, if you will, by the, the last events of the birth narratives In verse 39 of chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, everything according to the Mosaic law, down to the detail, everything by the Mosaic law, they returned to Galilee, to their hometown, their own town of Nazareth. And they noticed the child grew, became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But he was God. What a mystery. And the grace of God was upon him. And then the other bookend is the very end, verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the two bookends of this account both emphasize his growth and his development as a human who was fully God. But these are the two bookends of this account that we have here that we're going to look at this morning. Let's just work through this account. This is a very fascinating story. It's a fun story. It's a fun story, especially for parents, <laughs> imperfect parents. Okay, verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. 
Now, we'll stop right there. <clears throat> you know, in the Old Testament, there are, there are several places where we have instructions about this. I would just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, as Moses gathers the children of Israel for the last time before he is going to uh, depart from them, and they are going to go into the promised land without him, Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law. Uh, Deutors uh, is the second, and Namas law, the second reading of the law, and second affirmation of the law to the children of Israel before they are going to the promised land. And in this law, he reminds them in verse 16 of chapter 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. That is the tabernacle or later the temple where the Holy of Holy is, where God's presence rests, where the Holy of Holy is, the Shekinah glory. That's the place of appointed uh, appearance of God. Three times a year. One, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Two, the Feast of Weeks. And three, the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift. You notice that the, the tithing connection here, in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So these three feasts, the, the, first, the first feast that's mentioned of unleavened bread is Passover. Because as you read Leviticus chapter 23, as we studied in one of our classes last year, that the, the close connection between Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's really one feast uh, period. Even though Passover is a specific day, it leads right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Together, they comprise eight days. So the first time you are all men, and you notice it says all men, and, and that's exactly true. There was some development later on in Judaism that suggested that women should have come at least one time if they could. But all heads of households were supposed to go to Jerusalem, if at all possible, for these three feasts. And that's quite a, that's quite a feat when you think about it. These people live, for example, probably the largest Jewish population in the world this time is Alexandria, Egypt. They have to travel from Egypt up through Gaza, the Gaza Strip, across into Jerusalem, from Galilee, from Syria. Jews that live throughout the Grecian world, like Saul of Tarsus, his family, where they were from in Asia Minor. They were supposed to travel to Jerusalem. And the second time they came was the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, which we know as Pentecost, 50 days after. So you turn around and come back again 50 days later. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the fall feast after Yom Kippur, the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Three times a year, you were to come back to Jerusalem. And every time, but especially Passover unleavened bread. This is sort of the Easter celebration, you know, for the Christian church or Christmas, you might say. This is really the big one, the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And you would have these crowds, literally a million people compressing on, if you've been there today, on the old city of Jerusalem, I use this analogy many times because it's best for Seattle I, I can think of. If you think about this, the size of the actual walking around Green Lake, that's about the size of the old city of Jerusalem. About 2.8 miles, about 3 miles. That's the size of the old city. People are streaming from all over the known world, if you will, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. They talked about in some of the early writings 
a couple hundred thousand lambs being slaughtered. The river, the, the blood flowing like a river out of Jerusalem from the lambs that were slaughtered. The hills around Jerusalem lit at night with the campsites of all the pilgrims and tours. This press of people, this crowd of people. I remember one year, uh, some years ago, when our granddaughter Natalie was had just been born. That first year she was born. And Sarah and Pat were over in Port Orchard, and they came over for the Christmas tree lighting downtown Seattle. And I can still remember there was such a crush of people that, that year down there that we were, you know, we got separated, and they're pushing the stroller with this little less than one-year-old baby in this stroller, born in August. And we're up there, and they're back there trying to find each other. And you just kind of go with the crowd. This, 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 You know what I'm talking about, right? You've all been in something like that. Anybody going to the game tonight? Huh? Come on, Jennifer, are you going to the game tonight? Uh, what? Not this week. Okay. All right. So if you're going to the game tonight, you might be in that kind of crowd trying to get up into your seat. Mary and Joseph, Mary didn't have to go. You notice that? Mary didn't have to go. But it says here, verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. They evidently went every year. Even though in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only have one account of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. John has three. We must remember for maybe 12 years and maybe more, he came every year to Jerusalem. Jesus came every year with his father to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover to this beautiful temple that King Herod had built. Uh, this temple that, that, was a, that was a mark to Herod, but also stood out from all over everywhere as you came to Jerusalem to this beautiful temple. And Jesus' family came, and he came with them, and Mary and Joseph came. And he's 12 years old. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you know that at age 13, boys go through what we call a bar mitzvah. Girls at age 12, a bat mitzvah, bar and bat, simply the male and the female. And this is the age at which you move into adulthood as a Jewish male. It's, it's a year process. You know, when, when, a, when, a, when a young man at 13 comes up in the synagogue and, and reads from the Hebrew text and so forth, that is after that year of study, preparing for this. The bar mitzvah is, is the completion, sort of like we will have uh, our Bible instruction class, formally confirmation, a two-year Bible study, and we have them come up, and we have the the ceremony and so forth, and we over the things we learned. This was the final year, so this is that year that Jesus, even back in the first century, this is that year that Jesus, as a young boy, a twelve-year-old, is in that process of studying to become a man, if you will, in the Israelite culture. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus is 12 years old. We don't know if his siblings have been born yet. We, we believe, I believe, from Scripture, when it talks about his siblings, it really means his siblings, his brother and sister. Uh, there's no reason not to take it that way. He was the firstborn, but he had siblings. Were they born? Were they going with them? Were they traveling? We don't know. But it does say, they, <clears throat> excuse my voice this morning. Uh, you may have not recognized by, recognized by now. I'm, a, I'm about a, Teresa said I'm an octave lower. I don't know if it's a full octave. It's a couple of notes, maybe, okay? Um, but anyway, that's the way. I, we heard this last week that Irving Berlin, who wrote the famous uh, White Christmas, 
that he, he didn't, he wasn't such a great piano player. So as I understood it, they had a thing on the keyboard. He could switch to move it down an octave and up an octave and not know you have to change his keys, right? Okay, so that's what I'm doing today. All right. So they go down to Jerusalem. They go to this feast. There's hundreds of thousands of people. It's crowded. It's packed. It's a celebration. It's wonderful. They have psalms they sing on the way down to the feast. And it's, it's, it's what they look forward to, like you look forward to, to Christmas and celebrating with your family and friends, hopefully. It's a wonderful celebration. They're there for eight days. I don't know where they stayed. Did they pitch a tent outside in the hills? Did they have relatives nearby? We don't know. But they were there for the entire celebration. It would have been an eight-day celebration. In verse 43, after the feast was over, the eighth day, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Eight days. Probably during that eight days, he had spent time in the, in the temple. Incidentally, in the temple, there were, we know from the Talmud, that there were three synagogues inside the temple. The temple was a big compound, a big public area, the biggest public area in Jerusalem. And we know the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, and so forth. But in those outer courts, there were three synagogues. And in the southeast corner, so today, if you think about the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is, the southeast, east of that and to the south, there was a synagogue there particularly where the rabbis and the scholars gathered to teach and instruct them the law. And they would talk and the students would come and they would ask questions. The Hebrew teaching method was to, to ask questions to bring up issues, and students were encouraged to also ask questions, to answer questions, and had this interchange on the law. And I'm sure Jesus engaged in that. And they were there for eight days, and then they left, and they thought Jesus was with them, but he stayed in Jerusalem. Then they began looking for him. And remember, they've been entrusted with the Messiah, right? The Son of God. And they lost him. Okay. They began looking for him. And after three days, no, let's just go back. When, verse 45, the end of verse 44. They began looking for him among their relatives, their kinfolk, and their friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Uh, Daryl Bach in his commentary on, uh, Daryl Bach from, from Dallas Seminary in his commentary and his talks, this, this is a passage every parent can relate to, right? You're not going to admit to it? You ever lost a kid? Huh? <laughs> See that hand? But you found him. There he is. Good. Good going, Christy. All right. We only did it once that I can remember. The first years we were back here in Seattle when our kids were little, and we had two cars at church, and we got home and looked at each other and started getting, where's Linnea? Well, she came with you, right? No, I didn't bring her. She came with you, right? No, I didn't bring her. And uh, Linnea was still at church, okay? And so that was before the era of cell phones. I'm not sure who she was with or what happened, but uh, we just forgot her. But we didn't really forget her. We just assumed, right? So these people, they're, they're traveling in a, in a caravan. The folk from Nazareth probably all came in a caravan, because it was better for protection, it was better for traveling, it was better for camping, 
And they came with all their relatives and all their friends. And it's, this is not that unusual. Joseph is probably traveling with the men and Mary is probably traveling with the women. And both of them assume that Jesus is with the others. Certainly he wouldn't have just stayed there. Remember, the Bible clearly says that as the Son of God, he was sinless, right? He had never disobeyed his parents. That would be a sin to willfully disobey your parents. He is sinless. Willful disobedience is selfishness. It's a sin. So there would be no reason to assume that he wasn't just with them traveling back until he wasn't. And they began looking for him. And I can, I can imagine the, the fear. You know, the first, okay, he's with Uncle Saul. Oh, he's over with Aunt Elizabeth. He's with, and the more you look and look also you realize he is not here. We are a day out on a three-day journey back to Nazareth. Jesus is not with us. There's a million people in, in Jerusalem that are leaving this week. And I can imagine the fear. I can imagine the, the panic. And I can imagine the anxiety. Remember, the, the, this culture, the Jews, they, did believe, they believe strongly, as we see in the Gospels, they believe strongly in, in, demon, in the demons. These people were told they have been given the Son of God who is to become the Messiah who will save His people from their sins. If that's the case, wouldn't there sp- certainly be spiritual forces and those who would do all they could to stop Him? What if something happened to Him? What if Satan had his way? And, and, and I can imagine the panic and the, and the anxiety and, they, and as a parent, you can imagine, you know what it's like when you've, maybe you've lost a child in a crowd at the fair or a game or somewhere, and they get separated. And you can imagine the panic and anxiety, and they, in a quick hurry, I assume, I assume they got to the evening to strike camp and realized he was gone. And they must have traveled all night back to Jerusalem. So they went back. And in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Three days, probably in, the, in Jewish reckoning, any day is a part of a day. And so probably it's one day out, they realize he's gone. One day back to try to find him. And day three, they go into the temple and they find him. And there is Jesus. Now remember, willful disobedience is sin. He is sinless. And here they come. And they, and I, it very well could have been in that synagogue in the south, southeast corner of, of the temple square where he's sitting and he's engaged with the rabbis, the doctors of the law, the scholars. And there's no hint here of anything of animosity or jealousy or that kind of thing we see later on in the Gospels with, the, with the many of the Pharisees and scribes. But they are teaching, and they are allowing students to interact and ask questions, and he is listening, and he is responding, and he is asking questions that they are amazed. How did this 12-year-old boy get this knowledge? Who taught him? Who is his rabbi? Whose feet is he sat at? Who are his parents? He is engaged with the scholars and out 
scholaring them, if you will, asking questions they probably can't answer and looking at each other and maybe unrolling the scrolls and going back and looking, uh, look at the scrolls and look up the passage and, and see what is said. And there's this dynamic engagement of this 12-year-old boy and the, and the crowd is evidently gathered and everybody is affixed looking at this and intrigued. And here come Mary and Joseph. What do you do? What do you do as parents? Parents? You yell at him? <laughs> do you scold him? Do you grab him out of there? I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Mary and Joseph looked at him. In verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And I kind of stopped on that word. What, what, that word astonished. It's a, it's a powerful word. If we see later on in the Gospels, when people hear Jesus teaching, what were they astonished about? Were they, like everybody else, astonished at his wisdom and his teaching and his insight into the scrolls and the Torah? Is that what they were astonished at? Well, I'm sure there's that element of it. But remember, they have lived with this boy for 12 years. I doubt this is the first time he has had theological discussions that have astonished people. In his, his community, he goes to synagogue every Saturday. He has sat under rabbinic teaching. He probably has this reputation. I think, I think their astonishment is that he did this. He has never disobeyed them. He is the God-man. He is perfect. He has never disobeyed. He has never willfully deceived them. He, he never, that would be sin. He could not be sinless if that's true. But he's fully human. And I think Mary and Joseph, they're astonished. As Mary tells this story to Luke, I was astonished. How could he do this to us? And look, and look at her, what she says to him. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? She doesn't say, Son, why are you talking to the rabbis and scholars? Why have you done this to us? Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And that word the word that's used there for anxious is very powerful. It's a word used later on, for example, when uh, the story of uh, Lazarus, you know, the, and, and Abraham in the, in the bosom of Abraham and dives and so on, the rich man who, is the, who is, is the one being punished. And he says, I'm in agony in these flames. It's the same word, this agony. You have caused this horrible agony agony over we've been looking for you we have been dying what what have you done how could you do this to us how could you do this to us you've never done this before and jesus responds to them now you know tone of voice body language facial expression is an awful lot of communication right we don't get any of that. All we get is the dialogue. And his response is, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, how did he say this? Is this a gentle rebuke to his parents? 
what are you so worried about? I mean, you know, maybe some of you have a 12-year-old that'd say, what? What? Why? what are you so worried about? I'm fine. You're looking for me. I'm sorry you couldn't find me, but, you know, is it kind of a gentle rebuke to his parents? What are you so worried about? What are you all, what are you all worked up over? Didn't you, didn't you know this is what I'm supposed to do? Well, I, I don't, my, myself, I don't think it's that way. To me, that would be very unlike Jesus and the compassion and care he had for his family. I could see me doing that, maybe, you know. But I think there's, a, I think there's probably a genuine pain here to see his parents in such pain. And it, it, I mean, it's almost like a naivety, being naive about this. Like, like what, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause this much trouble for you. I assumed you knew what I would be doing. And in fact, the, the play on words here is, she says, your father and I have been searching for you. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And you see the, the, the father and the father there? There's two fathers. Jesus' earthly father, who, who has authority over him as a father, and his heavenly father. Now there's one little, this sort of little interesting thing here. In the original language, it doesn't really say my father's house. It's sort of this ambiguous statement that he says, I must be about the things of my father. The word things, you know, is, is a very ambiguous word. My brother Ken Myers used to sit here, used to remind us, don't use that word things. It's so, it's so ambiguous, you know. It is. It's just, didn't, this is what the literally says. Didn't you know I had to be, didn't you know I had to be about the stuff of my father? Well, the interpretation then is, well, he must be talking about his father's house. Some of the translations say the affairs of my father. It could be either. The point is, Jesus responds almost out of a, to me, almost sort of like, as a human, as a 12-year-old human, who, yes, is fully God, but yes, he is fully a 12-year-old kid. I think he's just simply, I didn't mean to hurt you. I wasn't, I'm not being disobedient. This is what I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do. I assume you knew this. I assume you knew this, that I would be in my father's house. I would be among my father's affairs. But they didn't understand. Should they have understood this? Should they have understood by now that this was not unusual, that maybe like Samuel, maybe he, they should take him to the temple and leave him there like Samuel, right, in the Old Testament and leave him in the care of the, of the priests and the rabbis? Is this what they should do? He's in his, his father's place. This is his father's place. A child's home is his father's home and he has a home in Nazareth and he has a home in Jerusalem and I, you know, I've been thinking about this. I've never really thought about this before, but two nights. He spent two nights in the temple without his family. Where did he sleep? Where did he eat? What happened at 2.30 in the morning in the temple compound? There were people who stayed there. We know that we read earlier in this chapter that Anna, the prophetess, she stayed in the temple. But, you know, I mean, I've had a few times, a couple of years ago, I spent the night in O'Hare Airport, and I wouldn't recommend it, but, you know, I got there at midnight, I had a six o'clock flight, and I thought, it, was, it wasn't weather, it just was me, I thought, well, it's kind of dumb by the time I get to a hotel, check in, get up, check out, get back to the airport, I might as well just stay here. So I did. 
How many of you have been to O'Hare Airport? Right. It's busy. It is crowded. It is busy. But you know what? At 2.30 in the morning, it is really quiet. It's amazing. It's so quiet. It's almost scary. And about 4.30, it starts in again for the 6 o'clock flights. I wonder what it was like for the Son of God to wake up at 2.30 in the temple when no one's teaching and it's quiet and to reflect what did he know? What did he know? What, what, what did he give up to come to earth? He's a 12-year-old boy but he's the son of God. And he spent those days and those nights by himself with the crowds and then alone. And I think, he's, I think he just, he, I just think he said to his parents, I, didn't, I'm sorry, didn't you know this is what I'm supposed to do? I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to cause you this much anguish. But they didn't understand. What did they know? What did they understand? Did anybody really understand that it was actually God himself at this point? How could you, how could you comprehend that? Your own child, you've watched him grow, you've changed his diapers, you've fed him, you've cleaned up after him, you've watched him grow as a young boy, now a teenager, about to enter manhood as a Jewish male. Verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them. Now notice this. They didn't leave him in the temple like Samuel. He didn't, he, he went with them. They went back to Nazareth, up north to Nazareth. And notice what it says. He was obedient to them. Willful disobedience is a sin. He was not being willfully disobedient. He was just doing what came naturally in his engagement with the scholars and the rabbis and got caught up in it and stayed there for three days. Maybe oblivious as a hum, from the human side, oblivious to the, the pain he might be causing his parents. He was obedient to them. Notice we saw on Christmas night, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She tucked these things away as a mother. Mothers, 12-year-old boy, how would you process this? How, how thrilled would you be when you found him and saw him? And how upset would you be that he put you through this? And Mary put these things away and treasured them up and pondered them. And Luke unlocked these from her through the Holy Spirit. Mary, tell me, what, what happened there? And she unfolded his story after the resurrection. All this comes together. And then finally it says this. And here it is, friends. This is the genuine 100% humanity of Jesus Christ. Just like me when I was 12 years old. Just like some of you here who have passed that age, who are in that age. He grew and developed in wisdom, physical stature, 
and in favor, grace with God and man. How is this possible? This is not a 30-year-old adult Jesus in a 12-year-old body. This is a 12-year-old boy who goes back to Nazareth and finishes his adolescent years and his young adult years in the quietness of Nazareth, being obedient to his parents, working in his father's carpenter shop, taking over the trade after his father dies and leaves them until the next story of John the Baptist. A couple of takeaways for you. Number one, Jesus was obedient. He was obedient. He obeyed his parents. He was never willfully disobedient. Throughout Scripture, there is this principle that respect for authority is something that God has ordained and asked for. And as Christians, we should exhibit respect for authority. You don't always have to agree with them. And there are ways in a democracy and so on to change those things, hopefully. But there is this order that God has established and he has asked us to have respect for authority. Jesus as a human, he, he's God, but he is a human. He had respect and he was obedient to his parents, I'm sure to his rabbis and teachers. He had this respect for authority. And this is the same Jesus who tells us in Matthew chapter 23, talking about the Pharisees and scribes. I mean, this, this is an amazing statement, but it sums up this idea that, of, of how important it is. Jesus says this, let me read it to you, in Matthew chapter 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Pharisees and scribes, he tells his disciples, you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now how's that for some instructions? You listen to them and do everything they tell you, but don't do what they do. Why? Because their authority laid in the Scriptures. They were the ones who brought the Scriptures. And when Jesus is saying the authority is in the Scriptures, and as they lay out and teach the Scriptures, you listen to what God says to you. That's your authority. But don't mimic them. That's how deep that respect for authority is. And young people, I'll just, I want to tell you that as, as you prepare for for work, for school, wherever God takes you, you'd be surprised how far respect for authority will, 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 will stand out to your colleagues and others as a, as a mark of one who really does love God. Children, your parents, respect for their authority. Students, for your teachers, for your employers. Respect for authority just stands out in our world today. It's a takeaway for you. Jesus went home, and he had respect for authority, and he was obedient. Jesus had two families, just like you and I do. He was the son of God. He was doing what he felt he needed to do at that point. He was not disobeying. He just did what he felt God called him to do. But he was the son of his family. And you and I live in that same world. We are one with Christ. 
He calls us his brothers and sisters. We are one with Christ. And you know what? There are going to be times where you are going to do things that no one else is going to understand. Why would you do that? Why do you spend so much time at church serving? Why do you give money to mission work? Why do you, you know, they're not going to always understand. Why is it so important to you to be honest? Why can't you do like the rest of us and just cheat a little bit? Listen, friends, don't expect everybody to always understand. But Jesus had two families, and so do we. And ultimately, our allegiance to God will always come first. The last thing, obedience, understanding, respect for authority. It's so valuable. Understanding that we have a calling that you can't expect everybody to understand. My high school football coach could not understand why I would turn down scholarship offers to college. I wasn't that good. Trust me, our team lost every game except the first game. We tied the worst team in the league. So take it from there. But I was the right size. He had good connections. I had potential. He could not understand, you want to be a youth pastor? Why would you do that? Bible college? He's a great man. And I loved him. He was good to me. But don't expect everybody to always understand. The last thing is, growth and development is part of our human condition that Jesus completely embraced. Let me close with this. I love what Daryl Bach in his commentary says here. One final application emerges from Jesus' stop at the temple. Sometimes we think adolescents are beyond useful spiritual reflection, having entered a twilight zone from which they hopefully will emerge in their 20s. We sometimes treat Jesus as an exception because he was the Son of God. But Jesus took on humanity to show us how to live and walk with God. Here's a 12-year-old seeking to know God better. We sometimes underestimate what our children are capable of reflecting on if encouraged. Teenage years are not necessarily lost years decried to be spent in exile on Gilligan's Island. Our children should be encouraged to develop spiritually, whether through their involvement in church or in discussion of topics that matter with their parents and with others. Jesus could sit with the rabbis. Maybe our children can as well. If we will be sensitive to the potential they have and relate to them at a level to which they can respond. Jesus completely embraced our humanity. And that meant he was 12 years old. He really hurt his parents, but he didn't mean to. It wasn't disobedience. He went home, and maybe he learned from that example. And he went home and, and probably didn't do that again to hurt their feelings. But he embraced us. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came back to Jerusalem as an adult. 
And the Gospel of John tells us he came during the Feast of Dedication and wandered in the temple. Today, the Feast of Dedication is known as the Feast of Lights, which is Hanukkah. Tonight, the last candle of Hanukkah in a Jewish home is lit, the Festival of Lights. And at that Festival of Lights, when Jerusalem was lit up with the oil lamps, and he said, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I have told you plainly, but you refuse to believe. I ask you today as we leave this place, have you believed? Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He died on the cross. He lived that perfect life. He paid for your sins. He is the light of the world that lights every person who comes in this world. Receive that message of hope and salvation through accepting Christ as your Savior. Heavenly Father, all glory and honor indeed go to you. We thank you for the privilege and the joy of worshiping this Resurrection Sunday. May we walk with you this week, bring pleasure to you. Dismiss us now with the peace of Christmas and the light of Christ in our lives. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.